week through the book of Revelation. Um, and I don't know about anyone else, but personally, I have been really, really encouraged during this time, uh, this season, as we are making our way through the book of Revelation. Um, and I think Matt has just done a fantastic job. I've heard it from several other people, too, that, that really um, the Lord is just really speaking uh, through Matt to uh, Redeemer Fellowship Church, I think, through the book of Revelation. I, along with many others, have found it to be so encouraging and helpful. Specifically, I'm really thankful for the way Matt has handled the book so far, has handled uh, the, the book of Revelation in the past few weeks. He has done so, I think, in a way that's very graceful, in a way that is uh, not divisive, in a way that, that really brings out of the text the, uh, the theme that God would have us to see, um, not just uh, inputting into it controversy and our own views, but rather drawing out of it um, what the Lord would have us to, to hear and to see and to be encouraged by in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7 today. That's where we're going to be. So if you want to go ahead and turn over there, Revelation chapter 6, where we're going to start. Um, and, and before we dive into our text, I, I just want to say, as I've been super encouraged by the way uh, Matt's handled the text. Specifically, last week as we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I think probably my favorite uh, section of scripture in the book of Revelation, um, and pretty high up there on my uh, top favorite passages of all time. I love the, the throne room scene that we see in chapters 4 and 5. And as we transition from that scene that we looked at last week in chapters 4 and 5 to what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 6 and 7, this represents a, a turning point in the, in the book, uh, really a change in, in the flow of Revelation, uh, even a change in the very like just feel of the book. Uh, as we're going to see as we dive in today. Um, uh, up until this point, I think most of what we've read in Revelation has been pretty uncontroversial, uh, relatively clear to understand its meaning, not a whole lot of you know, division-causing elements thus far, and Matt has really brought that out well. He's not added anything uh, to that. However, the following chapters, uh, starting in chapter 6, where we're going to be today, 6 and 7, and going forward from here, we really, we see these chapters get, they, they're really loaded down with lots of um, apocalyptic writing, lots, lots of uh, end times, visions, and uh, prophecies, and things that, that begin to get a lot more difficult to really break down, uh, to understand, and to do so rightly. And these are passages that are oftentimes the point of much controversy, much debate, um, and so that's what we're moving into. We're, we're moving into kind of a shift in the book here in these passages. And my hope is that as we move, as we transition into the next uh, part of Revelation, that we will not get so bogged down with all of these divisive issues, all of these um, uh, and different interpretations, different perspectives, what this means, what do these numbers mean, this and that, and, and hopefully be able to um, just draw out what God would have us to see in the text uh, in my New Testament class that I took this past semester, I had uh, Dr. Schreiner. Uh, he's an awesome professor, um, and like the class itself was worth taking just for his commentary on Revelation. But I loved what he said as he began kind of his introduction into Revelation. He talked about the first time he read the book of Revelation. He was a new Christian. He was like 17 years old, and he read through the book of Revelation. And uh, being a young Christian and, and a pretty young man in general, like he, he recognized his response was, 
wow, that was, that was amazing. I didn't understand a lot of that. Um, but he said what he did know, like what he concluded after reading Revelation, he said, I concluded on a few things, that God is sovereign and that we win, that we are victorious, that, that the devil, the enemy, does not win, the world does not win, but Christ wins and we in Christ win along with him. So, so for him, the, the end kind of result of reading the book of Revelation is, I think, what it should be. It should be hope and joy and, and seeing the victory that we have in Christ. And that is the conclusion that I hope we come to as well as we work our way through some really pretty difficult passages uh, to navigate. But with that being said, we're going to dive right into our text, Revelation chapter 6. It's a lot of text, so bear with me as we read all of this. Uh, and I've already struggled today, so I might slip up. Just, just follow along with me as best you can. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth. The moon full the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that, had, that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the, on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called 
with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zerubbabel, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. God, your word is so powerful. And Lord, I pray as we work through these texts, work through these words, these visions that you have delivered to us by your servant, John, Lord, that we would see the glory of the mighty lamb that was slain, but is now alive and reigning and bringing justice to the world. I pray, Lord, as we work our way through this text, that you would help me guide my uh, my words, the things I say, that they would be driven, motivated by a desire uh, for glorifying Jesus Christ. And Lord, for all that I say that is uh, confusing or wrong or misleading, that you would uh, wipe that away in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you can tell, these are some tough passages that we are now diving into. Uh, but I do think that there is, there is a reoccurring theme that is ever-present in these two chapters, which is why I've titled my sermon uh, Sovereign to the End, because I genuinely believe that throughout this, this passage, throughout this two chapters in Revelation, and throughout the book of Revelation in, in general, and the whole Bible as a whole, but I think we especially see the sovereignty of God uh, kind of just pouring forth out of this passage as we read through it. And Matt does this every week, and so I'm going to try and do it as well. I have a main idea for you guys. If you learn, like take nothing else from today, remember 
this. This is my goal is to make this uh, the, the argument and what we remember. And the main point is that the sovereignty of God extends from creation to redemption to final judgment and to everything in between and gives hope to his church. The sovereignty of God extends from creation to redemption to final judgment and to everything in between and gives hope to his church. So it's important for us to remember as we, as we begin in these texts, uh, starting from the very beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, it's important for us to remember where John is and what's going on as chapter 6 opens. Remember, he's in the throne room of heaven. This is where John is when, when the Lamb of God appears beside the altar and, and he is worthy to open the scroll. And the Lamb takes the scroll and, and as we're going to see, he begins to open the scroll by breaking the seals. And everything that we are going to see for, like henceforth in Revelation flows out of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. That's why I said it was kind of the turning point, also kind of a, a focal point, a springboard, if you will, into the rest of the book of Revelation. Everything that we see described here comes from that scene that we saw last week of the throne room of heaven, of, of God the Father, he who is sovereign in creation, sovereign in creating all things, Lord of all, and the Lamb of God who is sovereign over all things, including redemption. The God who created and the God who redeems, sovereign over all things. That's the picture that we were given in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And from that, we, we see flowing forth chapters 6 and following. And so we recognize, point number one, uh, the sovereign God unveils disaster. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, these first eight chapter, eight verses of this chapter, we see a great deal of disaster being released into the world, a great deal of kind of turbulence, of, of disaster, of misfortune, as we see these four riders coming forth in this vision, these four riders as these seals are broken coming forth into the world. We see the rider on the red horse, right, representing war. We see the rider on the black horse representing famine. The rider on the pale horse representing pestilence. And if you're like me and you don't know what pestilence is, it just means disease. Uh, I had to look that up because I really had no idea what that meant. So I'll save you that Google search. It means disease. Uh, these are, are pretty commonly what most uh, scholars, commentators understand these three horsemen to represent that that the red horse represents war the black horse represents famine the pale horse represents pestilence but you probably are noticing uh, that i left out the first rider and his horse i know stan is watching right now uh, very concerned that i've left out this rider uh, but the reason uh, that i've kind of left him out in this initial explanation is because there really is a, a pretty great lack of consensus over who this first writer is. We see the, the first writer presented to us in verses 1 and 2. He comes forth on a white horse with a bow in his hand with a crown on his head. It says that he comes conquering and to conquer. And this has been interpreted, who this writer is, what he represents has been interpreted like tons of different ways. Uh, and there really is no like sincere consensus among all of uh uh, Christians or, or scholars as to who this is, what he represents. Uh, some say that he represents false religion. Um, perhaps he's Apollos. 
or Apollo representing a false religion. Uh, some say that he represents uh, a sense of false peace that will come at, towards the end when, when there is a, a type of world peace that is a false peace, a false hope in unity and peace. Some say even that he represents uh, the Antichrist coming into the world. And any of these may be true. Personally, I, I tend to think that this first, first writer represents Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that the most plain reading of the text kind of lends itself to that understanding. Uh, I also believe that this imagery pretty closely resembles uh, the imagery that we see in chapter 19 of Revelation, where uh, Jesus Christ is described as coming on, uh, on a white horse. Um, but I, I want to just give this disclaimer. Like, I might be wrong, and I'm okay with that. Like, I, I hold to this kind of understanding of who this is pretty loosely. I, I think uh, that this is what it is, and, and I'm not alone in this. Certainly, there's smarter people that, um, that think that. Uh, it's usually pretty good practice that if someone smarter than, like no one smarter than you agrees with your view of something in the Bible, you're probably wrong. Uh, and I hold to that pretty, pretty sternly. And there are, but there are much smarter people than me that, that believe that this is Jesus Christ uh, here being pictured as the rider on the white horse. But, but, and the reason I, I say this disclaimer that I could be wrong, you could take a totally different opinion of who this is than me, and you can come talk to me afterwards. That's fine. You might convince me. I, I don't know. But regardless of, of who this first writer is, regardless of what you decide is being interpreted here, it is indisputable that the picture that's painted for us in these first eight verses of Revelation 6 is a very bleak one. It is a very bleak, very uh, somewhat sad picture that is painted here in the first eight verses of this chapter. Whether you uh, see this as happening in present time, things that we're experiencing now, or as some future revelation, we can, we can agree that there is a great deal of pain and, and suffering represented in these verses. But also, whether you see this as happening now or as taking place in the future, what is also true and what cannot be denied is that the kingdom of God will persevere during these times. That the kingdom of God will stand. Not only will God's kingdom endure during these times of famine, sword, uh, war, of pestilence, of all these things. Not only will it, will it endure, but it will expand. That the number of those who believe will grow uh, even in the midst of great trials, of great uh, tribulation, of great suffering. That even in the midst of that, the church will continue to grow. The kingdom of God will expand. The kingdom of God will go forth. How do we know this? We know this because these things, war, famine, disease, they are not sovereign. These things are not sovereign. The lamb is sovereign. God is sovereign over all of these things. God has issued these things as a decree of judgment, but he has not relinquished his control to these things. God still maintains control, still maintains sovereignty, and is still expanding and pushing forth his kingdom even in the midst of these disasters. Control is still his, sovereignty is still his, and his kingdom will continue to expand. This is why as Christians, we, we can and we should respond differently to disaster. We should respond differently than non-believers believers when we see natural disasters, when we uh, recognize problems in the world today, whether caused by sinful man or by uh, the effects of sin on 
the world. Christians can respond still maintaining hope, still knowing that our God is sovereign and is working things out for his glory. Even in the midst of these things, God is not only aware of what's going on, but God has orchestrated it for his glory. That is massive. And, and, and I know I sometimes sound like a broken record because I, I say these things a lot, but, but God's sovereignty is so comforting and such a beautiful, wonderful doctrine that we can recognize that God not only knows about these things, but has orchestrated them for his glory. And to that we say praise be to God. We can hope in that. And because we serve a sovereign God, we can maintain hope in any circumstances, even as we see in the following portion of our text, even as we face death. Point number two is that the sovereign God comforts his saints. The sovereign God comforts the saints. Here we see when the fifth seal is opened uh, in verse 9, we see John, uh, he, he sees the souls who have been martyred for their faith. And note what these souls are crying out to God. I love this. Their cry is this, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is a beautiful declaration, beautiful cry to the, the sovereign God, recognizing him as sovereign. There are many commentators, many people who have like critique this part of the text, saying that, that this prayer by these souls of the saints who have been martyred, that this is not a Christian prayer. They say these men are calling out for vengeance. They're calling out uh, to, for, for God to avenge them, for God to uh, uh, plunder their enemies. They are doing this out of a selfishness, a selfish ambition, a selfish call for vengeance on their enemies, out of anger. Uh, but I would argue... That this is not the case. Rather, I think we should see this as an appeal to the sovereign and holy God for justice to be done. Because God has promises in his word that justice will be done. That the evildoer will not prevail. I would argue that this is, is a prayer that is by a Christian heart. That it is biblically founded. And in fact, it sounds very similar to what we read in several psalms. Where the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord, how long will my enemies prevail against me? How long will I suffer while the, will I suffer while the wicked prevail? This is, this is a biblical cry. This is a just cry. It is a call for justice to be done, which God has promised would be done. And what does God do? We know that this is a good prayer because God does not rebuke them. He does not put this down, but rather he comforts them, gives them each a white robe, gives them rest. And then we see another reminder of the fact that God is still working, even in the midst of our chaotic world. We see this reminder when he encourages them to rest until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is a clear indication that God's kingdom has not been snuffed out, nor will it be snuffed out, because his kingdom will continue to expand even in the midst of tribulation. There are those who God has promised, in this text and others, that will be martyred for their faith. 
that will suffer, not only suffer, but suffer to the point of death. He tells them, there are more to come. You are not the last martyrs. More martyrs will come. And he encourages them, rest until the time is complete when all of those martyrs experience martyrdom. The sovereign God always comforts his people. He comforts his saints. He encourages us. But for those who do not belong to Christ, their end is seen in verses 12 through 17. Point number three, the sovereign God unleashes his wrath. I really kind of uh, enjoy end of the world movies. Um, I don't know if you guys are into those kind of movies, but I really, I, I find them to be a lot of fun, uh, enjoyable. Um, like movies like Day After Tomorrow or 2012 um, or any other kind of apocalyptic end time disaster movies, uh, The Knowing. I, I think they're, they're like kind of fun, you know. Uh, but the thing about those movies that is always and decidedly wrong is that at the end of those movies, every time there's always like uh, hope. Like either, oh, it wasn't actually a worldwide disaster, you know, or we solved it, we figured out how to stop it, or, uh, you know, ah, oh, some of us escaped with aliens, you know, whatever. There's, there's always like some glimmer of hope in the midst of these movies, like to leave you, you know, happy. It would be a crappy movie otherwise, I will admit. But uh, so they kind of have to do that. But. Like, the reality of what we see in these verses, verses in 12 through 17 is that we see a dramatic picture of God's wrath being poured out on all mankind. And for these people upon which his wrath is being poured out, these people who are seeing the devastation of the earth, the destruction around them, the end of time coming to them, there is no hope for them. Hope is gone for them. There is no... A moment at the end of chapter 6 where these people who are afraid for their lives, who are, who are seeing the earth crumble, who are hiding themselves, there is no point at which they're like, but things will be okay. Because that's not the case for them. The people depicted in chapter 6 in, in verses 12 through 17 have no happy ending, no hope for the future, no chance for escape at that point. Because the day of the Lord has come. The time for repentance is over. Just like the door on the ark that was shut by God and no one else was allowed in before the flood that we see in Genesis chapter 7, the same is true here. The time for repentance was over. You see, salvation is available now. Today is the day of salvation. It is available for us, but only for a time. The fact of the matter is that God is slow to anger. As we read in the psalm today in the assurance of grace, God is slow to anger. He is slow to wrath. He is merciful. And we see proof of this in the fact that in the story of Adam and Eve, he did not destroy Adam and Eve. What did God promise would happen to Adam and Eve when they ate of the fruit? What did God tell them would happen? He said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit? They did not die. Rather, the Lord showed them mercy. The Lord promised them a way of salvation. The Lord gave them a way to restore their broken relationship with him. He is, in fact, merciful. He is, in fact, slow to anger. Even today. That is still true. God is patient with his 
world, with his creation. The fact that we have not all been destroyed is proof of that. God is allowing time for people to repent. And the time is now to repent. And it's, it's amazing to me. When, when we were working through this in our sermon application team, uh, Will Hawkins made an, uh, an observation that, that I thought was, was profound. Um, and I just kind of missed it. And I was so happy that he pointed this out. Uh, but, but Will points out that uh, at the end of time, when, when these people who are facing the wrath of God, who know their sin, who know what they deserve, what do they seek to do? In chapter 6, look in verses uh, 15 and 16. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone a slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What we see here is at the end of all things, the response of sinners who know their guilt, who know their shame, who know what they deserve, is the same as we see in Genesis 3 from Adam and Eve. What do they do? They try to hide themselves from God. The response is the same from the beginning of time to the end of time to, to, to our sin. The response is shame and guilt and trying to hide from God. But there is no hiding from God. God knew where Adam and Eve were. They had not hidden anything from God. And so at the end of all things, there will be no hiding from the wrath of God to come. As much as people may want to. As much as people might try. Even to the point that they would prefer a rock to fall on them and crush them than they would to face God's wrath. But there is no escape. There is no escape. Today is the day of salvation. Today, right now, there is still hope. There is still opportunity for salvation for all who right now are rejecting Christ, for all who right now are sitting under God's wrath. Today is the day of salvation. Today, when, we put, when you put your faith in Christ, you can be saved from the wrath of God. Now is the time to get onto the ark while the door is open. But there is coming a day when the Lord will no longer stay his wrath, but will pour it out on sinful humanity. On humanity, And this is the day that we have pictured for us at the end of chapter 6 in Revelation. And the question is asked in verse 17, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is a great question. And this question is answered in the following chapter. Gloriously, we see the answer in chapter 7. And that leads us to point number 4, that the sovereign God brings eternal victory, satisfaction, and joy to his people. Again, here in chapter 7, we are presented with a passage that, that has been interpreted several different ways. When we read this section about the 144,000 that are sealed, and we see the tribes listed and, and all of that, uh, we can interpret this a million different ways, and it has been interpreted uh, a million different ways. Um, but I'm not, I'm not wanting to get into that, uh, but it is uh, sufficient to say, for our sake, that represented in the whole of chapter 7. Like, when we read it from beginning to end, all of the people that we see uh, in the first section and in the second section represents uh, all of the elect, all of those 
who have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection by putting their faith in him. All of the elect, all of God's people, all of those who are to enter the kingdom of God are represented in chapter 7. Or as John says in verse 14 of this chapter, all who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's who is represented in this chapter. It is all of God's people, all of those who by faith have been cleansed of their sins, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, making them white as snow. For those people, for those of us who are in Christ, the scene ends in the same way it ends for all of them throughout the book of Revelation. Every time we see an ending in the book of Revelation, with each ending we see rejoicing, we see worshiping the sovereign Lord through whom they have victory. Every time we see the people around the throne of God, every time we see the people in the new heavens and the new earth, those who have victory in Christ, we see rejoicing, we see worship, we see peace, we see everlasting satisfaction and joy. At the end of chapter 7, we read this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We see the hope in this text. That all of the things that afflicted mankind, even as pictured through the horsemen of chapter 6, are remedied in Christ Jesus on the last day. All of the things facing humanity as products of the fall, as judgment sent from Christ even, all of those things are remedied in Christ on the last day. As Matt has stated repeatedly through this study, this book was written intentionally to encourage a church in suffering. It was written specifically to encourage the church in suffering. As we read these chapters, we ought to be encouraged. We too ought to respond the same way that my professor, Dr. Schreiner, responded by rejoicing and saying, we win. We win. We have victory in Christ. Regardless of where we fall on all of the details of what things are going to look like, we all can agree and rejoice in the fact that we have victory in Christ Jesus. Amen. That should be our response. Matt said in his sermon last week that all of history is leading to a certain point. All of history is, is coming to a head at a certain place. That everything that's going on in this world around us will culminate to a certain ending. And here we see that is true. But the ending will be a very different experience for some than for others. We see that those who reject Christ find their end in the final verses of chapter 6. Facing the wrath of the Lamb. The very same Lamb, lamb who, was, uh, who was shown to us in chapters 4 and 5. Who was worthy to open the scroll. Who was slain. The Lamb that we see in Isaiah. That was the slaughtered lamb, the man afflicted, is now the, ram, the lamb who brings wrath. 
This is very different from the end that we see in chapter 7 for the people who are, who are in Christ Jesus. The pe for the people of God, their end is rejoicing. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Here's what he says about their end. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We see the sovereignty of God oozing forth from these two chapters of scripture. And it is intended for our comfort and for our hope as believers in Christ. Suffering is inevitable in this life. God's word even promises us that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But in the midst of that, the Christian ought to hold fast to the truth revealed in Revelation that we serve a God that is living, a God that is reigning on the throne, and a God that will bring justice to his enemies and peace and hope and everlasting joy and satisfaction to his people. As we look forward to that day, to the day to which history is leading, the day when Christ, when in Christ, we will experience all of these good things. For that, we as believers in Christ have reason to say, Amen. Let us do so today. Let us rejoice in that. Let us hope in that. In the midst of all that we see going on around us. Guys, we have, we have reason uh, to despair apart from Christ in this world. Do we not? When we look around us, we have reason to despair if it's not for Christ. But we know that in Christ, regardless of all that is happening around us, he is sovereign. That God is on the throne and that in Revelation we see victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the victory that we, that we rest in, that we hope in we glory in, that we see in the book of Revelation. Lord, I thank you for this book, this book that comes with the promise that those who read it will be blessed. Lord, I pray today that we as a congregation would be blessed by these words revealed through John in Revelation. Lord, I pray going forward for us as a church that these words would not fall on empty hearts, both for those here in this place, for those on the live stream, but also, Lord, I pray that we would take these words with us to a world that so desperately needs to hear them. Lord, I pray that while the door is open, that many would get on when they hear the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.